John chapter 4 and verses 46 to 54. And Jesus has just been to Samaria, as we looked at last week, and encountered the woman at the well, and now he returns to Galilee. John chapter 4, verse 46, and in Galilee he meets a desperate man. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, And went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. And all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Do please sit down. Today, we come across a story that communicates to us the extraordinary power of God's Word. This is a story, and the purpose of the story is to communicate to us the extraordinary power of God's Word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and uh, the power of God's word is evident by the result that happened when Jesus spoke. So this story is designed to communicate to us the extraordinary power of God's word. Now, when we use the word power, inevitably in our mind is uh, brought up various ideas related to power that are not precisely connected to this meaning of the story. For instance, if I say the word power, you will likely think of authority or even perhaps aggressiveness or mm, antagonistic approach to some situation or other, but you're less likely to think of the particular aspects of this power of God's Word that's here in this passage. You will think perhaps of a ruler or a politician or someone who orders people around. That's kind of power. But here we meet the power of whose Word? God's Word, Jesus' Word. And so that power is defined by the character of Jesus. And indeed in this story what we meet is the compassionate power of God's Word. There is uh, a sick son. And when you see the story, you've got to imagine the situation. There's, there's, a, there's a child who is ill. And uh, if you've had a brother or sister or your parent who's had a sick child or a grandparent, uh, you will know that it leaves you in trauma. There's a child who is ill in the household. Uh, as a parent, you would do almost anything to help. The child perhaps has a fever and is shaking. He's ill. Or maybe he's vomiting or bleeding. The child is sick. 
And so there's all this emotion that we're meant to feel in the story as it just talks about the child who's sick. But of course there's another character in the story, and that is the father, and the father is desperate. If you're a parent or a father or a mother and you've had a child who's, who's sick, you will know that you would do anything, anything whatsoever to help that child. You would cut off your right, uh, your right hand and cut off your right foot if it would make any difference. And this father, uh, we're told, is not just any father. He's an official. In other words, almost certainly he was an official of the court of Herod, the king at the time. That is, he was a powerful man, a royal official. He was a governing official. He had authority. He had power himself. But his power is powerless in the face of the sickness of his child. And so you have this desperate father who can order someone to get him lunch who can issue a command to set up a new program, who can build a building, who can adjust the budget to fit his particular priorities that year, but he has his child dearest to his heart. There's nothing he can do. And by contrast, there's Jesus. And he has power. And he speaks the word. And his compassionate power has an extraordinary impact. Now, as we walk through this story, we've got to ask ourselves the the, the prior question, which will hang in the air unless we address it. And, of course, that prior question is, is it true that every sickness, every disease, every problem we face, there is a promise here that if we're simply desperate enough or pray hard enough, we'll get a miracle from Jesus. There are people who preach like this. And is this actually what the Bible is teaching us here? And the answer is no. You say, well, how do, how do I know that's, uh, how can I be sure that you're right? And the other preacher I've heard who tells me that if I just believe enough that I'll be healed, how can I be sure that you're right? And he's, he's wrong. Well, let me give you one very simple piece of data. There are other children who were sick in Israel at the time. And they were not healed. There is no promise in the Bible that every sickness will be healed in this world. In fact, miracles are quite rare in the Bible. They cluster around the great events of God. Jesus, there are a lot of miracles. Elijah, amazing miracles. But they're not even in the Bible um, on every page. The supernatural work of God is relatively rare. Otherwise, it would not be supernatural. It would be normal. So there is no promise here that uh, at the click of our fingers or with enough passion or enough prayer that our sickness will be healed. No, there is a promise for something far greater. That is, whatever trial we're going through, however desperate we are, however great is our sin, there is a word from God, and that word is called the gospel, that is salvation. And one day we too will live. We will live. And that is the promise that is here. Of course, God does sometimes heal, and perhaps he will heal you. But if he does, you will know that it is merely a token of a far greater healing. For would it not be terrible if you were physically healed but not spiritually? And you were physically made better, but eternally you were not. How would that be compassionate? 
No, the healing from God, if you receive by faith, is merely a token of a far greater healing. A wonderful token, but a token nonetheless. So in this story, we have then imminent death, which of course conjures up this emotion, these tears, this trauma, this sadness, and then immediate life, which conjures up the contrary emotion of joy and celebration and wonder, and the channel for it is remarkable faith. Imminent death, immediate life, remarkable faith. So first, let's look at imminent death, the imminent death of the child, of course, verses 46 to 49. Jesus is coming back to Cana, where he performed his first miraculous sign, and it is Cana where he will perform his second miraculous sign. We're told so. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea into Galilee. And in particular, this second sign happens at Cana. Now, let's just pause there for a moment and think of the application of that. In John's gospel, there are seven miraculous signs that are designed in particular to point to be a sign of Jesus' salvation, who Jesus was. Of those seven miraculous signs, four of them occurred in Galilee, and two occurred in Cana. Now think about that with me, will you? Of all the places in the world, of all the peoples in the world, of all the times in history, two divine miracles of spectacular, blazing power happened in a small village just north of Nazareth in Galilee in Israel. Did they notice? Did they realize? Did they make the most of the opportunity before them? A place of such manifestation of grace is to generate a graced people. You know, when we live in a place where great things are done by God, it is important that we are people who do great things for God. A graced people are to be a serving people, a mission people, an active people in the kingdom of God. Of course, we are not to count our so-called privileges as things that can give us pride, but we're also not to be blind to our real graces. It's good to remind ourselves of this season of gratitude, being thankful. We're not to be blind to our so-called graces. Every time the Bible is opened, prayer is offered, teaching of the truth is provided, love in Christ's name is served, opportunities are presented before us to get involved in the work of Jesus, the most important work that can ever be done in this whole universe. Let us then, here and now, make the commitment to make the most of those multitude of talents that are among us for the glory of God. Not every place in America is Wheaton. You may say, I'm rather grateful for that. But just think for the moment of the extraordinary set of talents and opportunities and abilities that are even here represented. And think of that time on Judgment Day when God will call us to account for what we made of those graces let us then, if we are recipients of grace, to be a grace people. Well, the official does exactly that. He makes the most of his opportunity. Verse 47, he uh, hears of Jesus' return to Cana in Galilee, and he makes the trip from Capernaum back to Cana about a day's journey on foot. He got there uh, around the seventh hour, that is about 1 p.m., so he would have had to start pretty early in the morning. And so will you see his haste to get there in time for Jesus? He gets up very early. It's the, a bustle. Uh, 
There are people coming and going. Suddenly, the man of the household, this official, this royal official, has his own sort of empire with servants and all the rest. This busy man's household. All the appointments are put on hold. No, cancel that appointment. No, stop that appointment. I can't see him. I've got to go and see Jesus. He rushes to seek help from the one man he thinks can help him. He is desperate, and in his desperation, he cancels everything else on his appointment book in order to make the one appointment that matters, a meeting with Jesus. Now, of course, when we are desperate, sometimes we can look for desperate solutions. Everything we've tried has not worked, perhaps in our career or in our studies, and so perhaps we'll just bend the rules a little bit, just cheat a little bit here. It's, uh, it's only a white lie, but it, the, the, the end justifies the means. Uh, I came across a sports star recently who could not find any doctors to help him get better, and was in such desperation, he went back to his um, small island where he came from and found a witch doctor to help him. I suppose there's no one here who's looking for a witch doctor to help them, but we may be bending the rules a little bit. We're desperate. Perhaps we just fudge our tax returns. People will do desperate things when they find themselves in desperate situations, but this man makes the right choice. In his desperation, he goes to Jesus. He finds Jesus. He begs him to come and heal his son. Would you please, please, please help me? My son is ill. But then look, verse 48, what a strange reply from Jesus. Unless you people see miraculous signs, you will never believe. He wants him to come back with him. Jesus is saying, unless you see miraculous signs, you will never believe. Jesus is going to only speak the word. He will not see it as it happens. He will only hear the word that is spoken. But still, what a strange reply. Unless you people see miraculous signs, you will never believe. You know, sometimes, is it not the case that you and I, Christian people, walking in the Spirit, trusting God, still feel that when we pray, it is almost as if God is resisting answering. Is it not the case that many a godly person feels as if his prayers are sometimes bouncing off the ceiling? Now, why is that? Why does Jesus say that? Why does that sometimes our experience? If you've uh, ever had a, um, a child, you'll know that there comes a time when, as a parent, you begin to help them learn to walk. And there's a certain rather sort of funny series of things that begin to take place. You know, the child pulls themselves up on a, on a chair or a table, and they, they look out at you, and they decide whether they can dare take a step. And you're going, come on, come on, come on. And you stand, first of all, you stand really close to them. So the first step, you can catch them or grab their hand, and then they pull themselves back up, and then you step a little further back. And why do you do that? Because you want them to take another step. And then a wise father or mother will step a little bit further back so they can take another step and another step so they learn to to walk. And similarly, we are often treated that way by our Father God. 
like a father training his child to walk, will step further and further away as the toddler waddles across the living room until he finds his father's hands, so too our Lord sometimes steps back to give us room to develop in our life of walking by faith, not by sight. So it was with this man. And he does the right thing. He is now very direct with Jesus. Not rude, but direct. Verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now that's putting it bluntly. And that is prayer, my dear friends. Too many of our prayers are vague. They are polite and roundabout, not direct and passionate. When Solomon was asked what he wanted from God, he specifically asked for wisdom. He did not say, well, let me think about it. There may be various things that I could do with, and perhaps, uh, God, what do you think I most need? No, he said, wisdom. Jesus teaches us, ask and you will receive. The Bible says, you have not because you ask not. And a father delights to hear from his children He delights to hear specific requests. And now the man, toddling in his faith, in his desperation, finds the open arms of the compassionate Jesus, and he asks Jesus directly. Perhaps you are facing some imminent trial, some imminent danger, some imminent death, maybe. Would you learn from this royal official's example not to rely on your own power or your own resources, much less go to some um, dubious, desperate uh, means or method of one kind or another, but instead go to Jesus and ask Him directly imminent death but then we have immediate life look at verses 50 to 53 you may go says Jesus your son will live or literally your son is alive there's no delay Jesus spoke the word and he believed the word that Jesus had spoken. And Jesus spoke the word and the son, the little infant child, lived. Your son is alive now. What power is this in Jesus' word, in God's word? I love it when Martin Luther was asked how he accomplished all that he achieved in his life. Simply said this, I did nothing. The word of God did everything. So, beloved, let us learn this lesson over and over again in our homes, in our families, in our work, in our ministries, in our personal lives. The solution to the problem is the proclamation of salvation. The way to resolve the barrier is to be resolute with the Bible. God's Word, you see, is not merely ink on paper. It is not merely pixels on a computer screen. It is not merely grammar and sentence structure and a text. 
You know, we say in our circles, let's get the text right. And of course we should. But the Bible, God's word, is not merely a text. There's power in God's word. God's word is that which spoke creation into existence and which constantly holds the whole universe in existence too. Uh, let's... Let, let's list the ways that God's work, by, by the work of the transforming power of His Spirit, can help us practically. How, how do we learn to love each other? Maybe there's someone that you're in conflict with. Well, listen to the Word. You gather around the Bible with humble hearts. You see what it says. You, you mutually submit to Christ and His Word. Ephesians chapter 4, you speak the truth in love to each other. And you're united around that, that agenda of Christ and His Word. How do we reach our neighbors? I, I was fascinated recently to discover a friend of mine who put together a very well-used and really good resource on evangelism and uh, to, to use with people who are getting used to the, 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 the things of Christ. And it's a seven-week course, and he's been reflecting on its utility and whether it's still working today. And one of the things he said is that, that it's been actually really hard to get people to turn up for seven weeks in a row. And so he's, he's thinking through these things. And w- what do we need now in our own day, right now, to reach out to postmodern modern, busy people. What's the, what's the right technique? You know what his conclusion is? Get Christians to read the Bible one-on-one with non-Christians. Why is that? Well, because if you're further back from the Christian faith, you have more questions. You, you, you don't go to church not because you don't like the color of the carpet, but because you don't like the Christ that they preach. And actually, it could well be God's providence that in our culture, as it begins to change around us, what it's going to make us do and other churches like us do is actually become more and more clear about the importance of God's Word because the questions that our neighbors have will not be, what kind of music do you have? They will not be, how warm is the sanctuary this Sunday? They will not be, um, you know, does the preacher wear a suit or does he wear shorts? And you know, I'm never going to wear shorts, by the way. But what they will be is, how on earth can you believe that Christ is the only way to God? And your answer is going to be, well, I want you to, would you, you know, read with me John's gospel and you'll find out who this Jesus is. And you'll actually be reading the Bible with your friends then, you know. So it will push us. And that's, that's the, the reason that this person is concluding that the, the, the right answer to reach out to postmodern people today is Christians reading the Bible one-to-one with non-Christians. Being biblical keeps us from being merely traditional, from holding on to the jargon of the past. It keeps us from speaking the language of dead religion because we must ask what the Bible actually says and what it means today. Well, this immediate life, the servants come and meet the official and tell him that his boy, his beloved child, is alive. Verse 51, the man had believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he uh, is met by the officials as he goes back, and they say the son is alive. And the official asks what time he started to get better and discovers that it was at the exact time that Jesus spoke, your son is alive, the word that he believed immediate life. So would we also learn from this royal official's experience that God's Word, the Word of Jesus, 
is the power that we need to bring us to life. Well, there's imminent death followed by immediate life, but also remarkable faith. Look with me at this in the second half of verse 50 and then the second half of verse 53. In verse 50, we're told that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. He took Jesus at his word and left. I want you to think how remarkable this is. His son is at the point of death. Jesus says... He gives the word, your son will live. I've said it and now it will be. And the man simply leaves. The sick son who's uh, vomiting back home, who's shaking with a fever, who has caused him to get up early to get there by 1 p.m. that afternoon and have a daily, uh, long day's walk, caused him to cancel his appointments, caused him to have all this hassle to go and find Jesus, is still at home and simply on the word of Jesus he believes and goes. He's not seen any evidence. He's not seen any result yet. He simply believes. And then similarly in the second half of verse 53, now it's not just him who believes, it's his whole household. His family, his servants, everyone in this important official's personal empire believed. And again, what remarkable faith is this? Remarkable faith of the man who believed the word of Jesus with no data to prove that what Jesus said is true. He said it, he believed it, he went home. But then also what remarkable faith that on the witness of the official that the son was healed at the same time as Jesus spoke, now his whole household believes. Now we need to understand this right. Faith is not a magic key that unlocks the reluctant God. We do not need to generate exactly the right kind of atmosphere to sort of conjure up God into our midst that he might do something amazing. We don't need to um, sort of use magical uh, apparatus and give them a sort of religious gloss to make something happen. We don't need to sing a song over and over again, though that would be fine. But if we do it, we're not doing it to manipulate God or persuade God or, or, or something, something like that. Jesus speaks. It is so. The child is healed, and the man believes it, and the whole household believes it. Extraordinary power of God's Word. Faith, this remarkable faith, for it is remarkable faith, I think, he, he just goes home. Can you imagine doing that? Faith is the channel to that power, it is the reception of that word, it is the resulting remarkable trust of the whole household. As Paul puts it, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And here the word of Christ, Jesus spoke the word, and the man believed. Imminent death, immediate life, remarkable faith, all to show us the power of God's word. Now what about you? What imminent danger are you facing? As I said, Jesus did not heal every sick son in Israel then. He does not heal every sickness today. He does heal some. And we certainly pray for that and praise God when it happens. 
But what is on offer here for certainty is the spiritual regeneration, revitalization, renewal, the life, and the resurrection of the last day when Jesus will say, live. We live. Is that you? Would you... Would you trust him? Would you trust his word? Would you pray directly and ask God for help? I haven't always managed to do this in in, in this kind of way, but one... Uh, illustration of the kind of thing in my own life. Sometimes I've had, uh, you know, sometimes as a pastor, people, I don't know whether you knew this, but every now and then someone will complain about something, right? You know, and, um, and so uh, as a leader, you, you have pressures. One particular situation that I, I, I won't go into all the details, it was another city, it, it, was, it wasn't actually related to the church, it was uh, it was a, a person, a woman that we had, uh, Rochelle and I, we were rent, we had an apartment building because we didn't have any house, multi-story house. We didn't have enough money to pay the bills, so we bought a, a multi-story house in order to rent out some of the, the apartments so that we could pay our bills, you see. And uh, it, there was a woman with a single mother, a few children, and she was poor, and we thought, well, we, if we just cut that a little bit, we could probably still rent it for the rate that she could afford, and that would be a gracious thing to do, a kind thing to do, and we'll figure out how to get that. So we did that, and about six months later, we got a lawsuit through our door. I thought, what's this? And we looked through the lawsuit, and she was suing us because on the day when it was raining particularly hard, she had slipped on the back deck and fallen. Like, well, it rains, you know. What can, I, what can we do about that? And we looked closer at the lawsuit, and we discovered that actually... It's funny, you could see the sequence of events. After having so-called slipped and so-called hurt herself, the first thing she had done was not go to a doctor. The first thing she'd done was go to a lawyer. And because I knew the city, I knew that lawyer, and he was a shark. So the first thing she'd done was to go to a lawyer, and then after that she got the various data to prove something. Of course, this, we could have lost everything. Everything. It financially a home, place to live, uh, not our salvation, but practical things. And I remember the moment when I decided that I was going to go to Jesus directly. And I asked him directly to, for help. It certainly has not always been my experience. But the result of that was actually, while it took a while to get sorted out and was eventually sorted out, actually, even though it was a, it was a thing, it was not, it was God's business at that point. Would you go to Jesus directly and ask him? Would you read the Bible, God's word? Jesus is the word, John's gospel tells us. Here he speaks the word and the written word is God's word for us today. Would you then Read the Bible in your homes, in your families. Would you send your ministries on God's, God's, God, around God's Word? In, in your relationship with your husband or your wife, would you read the Bible? It is the solution to so much 
difficulty. When I do pastoral counseling, I can almost guarantee that at some point or other, if that couple had read the Bible and prayed together, they have stopped reading the Bible and praying together. Would, would you, the extraordinary power of God's Word. You know, when, we, um, when Rochelle and I first uh, got married, we made a commitment that we were going to read the Bible and pray together every day. I uh, had discovered that Billy Graham would read a chapter of Proverbs every day. And I thought to myself, there's no way I can do that, but I can read one proverb. And so we've done that. Every night before we go to sleep, we read one proverb and we pray together. Now, it's, I'm not going to lay a huge burden on you. It's one proverb. And let me be absolutely frank. When I say we pray together, you may think that because I'm a pastor, I pray for 15 minutes and bring in all the theology of the Westminster Confession and Jonathan Edwards and sort of go on to, you know, uh, splitting hairs between dispensationalists and, and, and whatever, you know, and talk about ecclesiology and, you know, and 15 minutes later, my wife is saying, oh, Josh, what a wonderful prayer. It doesn't happen like that, I can tell you. <laughs> we pray, and sometimes... Sometimes I, you know, I've fallen asleep while my wife's praying, and you know, I have to say that. Uh, I've actually fallen asleep while I've been praying. One time, uh, we, we have a, f- a habit as a family, uh, it's sort of a, a family thing from generation to generation, I think. We pray very simply around the dinner table. You know when you've got kids, and you, you're trying to bring in the Bible and prayer before they eat? They're hungry, you know? It's like they're saying, just get on, we need to eat. So we, we just have a sim- simple prayer, you know, thank you, Lord, for the food, and maybe pray another sentence or something, and that's it. And that's our habit. One evening, very late at night, and I was pretty exhausted, it'd be a long day, it was our time to read the proverb and pray together, and as it came to my time to pray, solemnly, lying in bed, my wife, I said, thank you, Lord, for the food, amen. So I don't want to give you the impression that there's some kind of you know, hyper-sanctified experience that I have. But it makes all the difference. You know why? It's really hard to be angry with someone when you're about to pray with them. Would you go to Jesus directly in prayer? Would you crack open the Bible and read it? Extraordinary power of God's Word. Let's pray together. Well, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us by your Word of its power. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Lord, would you help us to do that, to take you at your word? Lord, uh, we bring before you our desperate needs, our burdens. Your, Your Bible teaches us to cast our anxiety upon you. Lord, we throw at your feet our anxieties about money and health, about relationships, perhaps leadership responsibilities. 
perhaps a sin that burdens us. Perhaps there is um, some sickness, even a child. We bring those before you too. Lord, we ask for your help, for your power, and we take you at your word that one day on that last day you will say, rise up, live, and those who trust you will live. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.